in those devoted to the cause of Christ. In fact, in the course of that series of studies, we've seen victory often presented in the form of military victory. We've also seen victory, though, so often presented by the clothing of white and other matters that those shall be able to wear in a symbolic fashion in the very presence of the God of this universe. In fact, this evening, as we come to the 20th installment in this series of lessons on the book of Revelation, we have arrived at the 19th chapter. As you can well tell, given that there's only 22 chapters in the book, we are inching much closer to its conclusion, and what a fascinating consideration it has been. In fact, if I might so specify, the remaining chapters will even heighten our appreciation for the victory of those who are the faithful. And also, it shall be a rather dramatic presentation of the end that awaits those that are not faithful. Tonight, in the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we consider the 19th chapter, our text was drawn from verse 7, where the very marriage of the Lamb is there addressed and mentioned. But tonight, as we look at the entirety of that chapter, many things of great interest precede it, and some rather remarkable matters also succeed it as we close near the end of that chapter. The message of victory. As often as we have made note of it, it never should, though, venture far from our mind with regard to this book. It is, perhaps above all other New Testament books, the message of triumph in Christianity. Jesus came that you and I might triumph over Satan, self, and sin, and one day come over to live with God. In a very nutshell, that's the heart and core of this last book in the Bible. Though the message of victory has often been presented over Rome and over the beast and over the dragon and over other matters specifically stated, nonetheless, the absolute victory of Christianity is seen yet again in, the, in this 19th chapter. As we make preparation for looking at that chapter, might I mention that we had just studied in chapter 18, last Lord's Day evening, about the crushing defeat and the devastating overthrow of Babylon. In fact, that was the entirety of the 18th chapter. With that now having occurred, the aftermath is settled. Chapter 19 leads us to the very next story. After Babylon's defeat, the great whore has been overcome completely. What is it that shall follow? See if we can get the video back up. To chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Let's read the first 10 verses of this chapter. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, 
for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In verse number 1, or beginning of that location, we see very quickly and very easily that John saw and heard a number of things. Let's briefly make note of them and then lay a degree of emphasis upon the interpretation or some great lessons that may benefit you and me as we think about what John heard and what he saw. Verse number 1, John heard the great voice of much people in heaven. We shall, of course, notice very carefully where these voices were located, where was the origination of them. But notice what these voices acclaimed. First, Alleluia. Four times in this chapter already, as we've noted, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. What a marvelous decree of the justness and the righteousness of God's activities in verse number 2. And finally, may we appreciate also God's justice as he judged the harlot. Notice again, verse 2, And the reasoning for his judgment upon the whore, upon the harlot, is there again mentioned. Finally, isn't it easy to appreciate verse 3, the final end and doom, the smoke rising forever and ever? Beginning in verse number 4, notice the 24 elders and also the four living creatures. We have not encountered them now for several chapters, but they are again reappearing around that great circle of throne in heaven. We first encountered them as far back as chapter 4. We notice that they are again in the worshipful attitude toward God. For on the occasion of the decree of these voices in heaven, these 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshipped. Again, their statement, Alleluia, Amen. That word Amen means so be it or let it be. They again agreed with the justness and the righteousness of the decree of the fall of the harlot, as well as the consideration of alleluia and glory, honor, majesty, and power to the name of God himself. Following that, notice that John heard some more things. What was it that he heard? Beginning in verse 5, A voice came out of the throne, decreeing, Praise God, all ye his servants, whether small or great, we see again the worthiness of praise unto our God. As John sees these things takes place, and as he hears these various voices and their decrees, this latter set continues onward in verse 6. Again, he heard as it were the voice of a great multitude. And amongst that which was stated, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That's another one of those words that we do not encounter very often in a verbatim fashion in the Scriptures. It means all-powerful, almighty. Here again, note the amazing praise laid upon the God of heaven. He truly is awesome in every respect. Note with me also in verse 7, these latter decrees have not stopped. We see that let us be glad and rejoice. Isn't there a great reason for those devoted to God to have a rejoicing spirit, to be joyful and happy in their disposition toward their eternal destination? Here we note in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb is come. 
in a moment as we return and revisit that idea. It'll be significant to note that not only is the marriage come, but the wife has made herself ready. Closing part of verse 7. Finally, in verses 8, 9, and 10, we note that as is certainly not a shocking matter, the wife or the bride has arrayed herself appropriately for the day of her wedding. And isn't it amazing that she wears that which is fine linen, clean and white? And furthermore, that, that fine linen for us is identified as the righteousness of the saints. John was told to write these matters, what he saw and what he heard. And we have yet again one of the most beautiful beatitudes of the book of Revelation found for us in verse number 9. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. As our opening reading concludes, John was overwhelmed at what he saw and what he heard. He fell down to worship the angel that revealed all of this to him. However, the angel quickly responded, I am thy fellow servant, see thou do it not. Worship God. And finally, in verses 10 and 11, we see that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. With those things having been seen, and with our reading having touched upon them, what might be some observations that would in fact touch us so deeply as we reflect on some of these ideas? May I submit to you that many lessons could be drawn from this set of verses. Here are some observations, though, that we should ever keep in mind to help us in our walk faithfully that leads also to that destination of glory. Beginning back in verse number 1, we notice that this multitude worshipped and praised God. And may we never forget that God is worthy to be worshipped and praised. How often do we read in both Old and New Testament of the critical essentiality, the vitality and need? After all, give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. 1 Chronicles 16, 29. That's quoted verbatim in Psalm 96, verses 7 and 8. Again, David responded, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. It is not an optional matter to offer glory to God. He deserves it. He's due it. It is rightful for it to be offered to Him. In the New Testament, thus we see again and again how our Savior, even while upon earth, urged the proper worship of God when He found that they had turned the very place of worship into a den of thieves. Jesus was obviously rather beside Himself. He, in fact, chased on two occasions in John 2 as well as later in the book of Matthew those from that place who had turned it into a place of changing money, a place where animals were to be gathered, God is to be worshipped, and that in appropriateness. But that's not the only lesson. In verse number 1, salvation and glory and power and honor are from God. May we thus appreciate that salvation, that word deliverance, the salvation from sin, from Satan, from self, that is due unto the greatness and graciousness and goodness of God. None of us can claim to have a scheme or a plan of salvation apart from what God has delivered. The revelation of God is truly majestic in that way. Is it not true that God's thoughts and God's ways are higher than ours, even as the heaven is higher than the earth? Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. And as such, His ways being thus greater than ours, we can't figure out on our own a way to make it to heaven. It is only by the power of His revelation. John understood that fact. 
as such, he here was happy to write about that very point. But in the third place, in verse number 2, this great set of voices proclaimed, True and righteous are thy judgments. Notice again, now that which has just taken place in the previous chapter is the overthrow of Babylon, the fall of the harlot. Notice that in the aftermath of that is the very occasion on which these voices proclaim God it was right. It was appropriate for Babylon to fall. Oh, indeed, may we ever appreciate that it is always true that God's judgments are right. We may not always have the capability of seeing His providential hand at work in the daily operation of nations and communities and families, but we nonetheless know His judgments are right. In Isaiah, the 10th chapter, when there He decreed the fall of Assyria, His judgment was right. When in Habakkuk chapter 1 he decreed the fall of Chaldea, his judgment was right. And so it was also with Babylon. Notice again the statement is made in the closing part of verse 2. Speaking of this Babylon, this city that we have just described in chapter 18, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication. And as such she was worthy of the wrathful vengeance of a just and holy God. Thus, it shall also be, of course, on the day of judgment. No one shall be able to successfully argue with a judgment that God shall decree on that occasion. If that person has been found holy by virtue of his reliance upon the blood of Christ, then the blessedness associated with the entrance into heaven will just be magnified by the thankfulness of the person's heart. But on the other hand, for those who have not made availability of the blood of the, of, of the Son of God and thus are decreed to be cast into an eternal place of punishment in hell, they shall not be able to argue successfully, for heaven has done its part in the plan of salvation. Our part is, of course, the obedience to that which has been set forth. God's judgments are true and right. But in the next place, would you note with me the nature of verse 3? Even though the book of Revelation has often presented to us symbolic figures and pictures and scenes, it is true that there are sections within various passages that clearly have a literal character to them, and such is that which we see in chapter 19 of this book. Would you note with me, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. It is a rather sad and amazing thing that there are some who consider and believe that God is too loving and in that love will be unable to cast anyone into an eternal place of punishment. But friend, that's not what the scriptures teach. Those who so feel are such that they haven't yet appreciated the character of sin. God is not a little God and thus there is no little sin. And since sin is a violation of His will, sin can be punished as He so decrees. God told us as far back as Matthew 25, verse 46, that just as surely as heaven is everlasting, hell is too. And thus, here again we're reminded that the smoke of their torment rose up forever and ever. How important it is thus to not be amongst that number who meet the same end as the fall of Babylon. In verse number 4, as these 24 elders and these four living creatures fall before God in worship, notice yet another statement that's made in the verses 
not only there, but in the ones that follow. Alleluia. Amen. Praise our God, all, his, all ye His servants, and ye that fear Him, both small and great. That reference first to small and great reminds us that certainly there are varying degrees of those appreciated upon earth. There are those that are kings and there are those that are paupers. There are those who are in great repute and respect and those who are considered far less in human opinion. But might we remember that every living soul is significant. For there is an immortal spirit within you and me, and that spirit shall stand before its God in judgment, small and great, are able to appreciate the greatness and glory of God. Those who choose to ignore it shall meet the same fate and end as Babylon did in chapter 18. But those who are prepared for the glory thereof, the next major event is the marriage of the Lamb. With that introduction to that point, Note with me the beautiful picture presented in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice. Note John uses this personal pronoun, us. Let us be glad and rejoice. Why, John? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Upon earth, one of the happiest days in the life of that man and woman is the day of their wedding. That glorious occasion in which two become one when one flesh is thus therein made. That given occasion in which he promises himself in faithfulness to her and she promises herself in faithfulness to him, and hand in hand they proceed to walk in faithfulness to one another. You and I often consider the happiness associated with that day and also the great potential and promise that it holds in store for the years and the days ahead. Note that that same imagery is employed here. First, the marriage of the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? We've noted more than once in Revelation that Lamb is already clearly identified. In chapter 5, the Lamb we easily saw to be the Christ, Jesus. Later in chapters 14 and 15, the Lamb appeared again. Without any doubt, that Lamb is Christ. Though it may have been true upon earth, He never chose a wife and married in a physical way. We nonetheless see here the marriage of the Lamb has come. Who is His bride? There are those, of course, in the line of Dan Brown and some of the other books that have been written who did tell us He married, married Mary Magdalene. There's not a, a scintilla of truth in that statement. Our Savior never married while upon earth. But what then is the marriage spoken of in Revelation? Let us read it again. Verse 7 let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The ending of the verse reminds us who the bride is. The righteousness of saints. We see in the New Testament this rather glorious picture how that in fact Christ is portrayed as the bridegroom. More than one of his parables portrayed him in that fashion or way. And even Paul's dramatic discussion in Ephesians 5 said, I speak of a great mystery, did he not, about the husband and his wife related to Christ and his church. These saints to which we see reference here reminds us that the bride of Christ is his church those who have professed allegiance and devotion to Him, 
those, in fact, who have devoted their life and faithfulness to his way and to even wear his name. That name Christian that you and I so proudly wear is his name. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And in that fashion and way, note that the linen in which this bride is arrayed, just as on her wedding day, many so often choose to wear white indicative of purity, note here that it is the same. She should be arrayed in fine linen. And what's more, it's clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Might we take note of the fact that there is a rather profound statement made at the close of verse 7. As we think about the comparison to this marriage occasion, it says, His wife hath made herself ready. Just as a bride prepares for her wedding day, everything has to be perfect. She's got everything from her clothing to the church building to the cameraman. Everything is absolutely ornate in its presentation. For that's a very exceedingly special day. Is it any less here in this description? It says his wife hath made herself ready. That is to say, by the character of righteousness which she has lived, she has so conducted herself in a fashion to be ready for the occasion of this marriage. It has not been a haphazard presentation. It has not been an optional preparation. Oh, how those who think that life at least in this way, is not important, should reread texts like this one. We can't meander through life haphazardly and expect to enter heaven. It doesn't work that way. The bride must make herself ready for the occasion of that marriage. And we aren't ready unless we're clothed in righteousness. Verse number 8. Since righteousness is the very commandments of God, Psalm 119, verse 172, it is those commandments that we must utilize to conduct ourselves in behavior and manner so that we shall be ready to be a part of the marriage feast, to be a part of that grand marriage of the Lamb. As we have looked at those matters, might we appreciate two other brief lessons and then we'll look at the latter verses in this chapter. But notice verses 9 and 10. There is in addition this statement of beatitude to be found in verse number 9. John was commanded to write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. As if we might not have gotten the message by the discussion of verses 7 and 8, we are reminded again. This takes us to the scene of Matthew 22 where our Lord taught a parable about one who in fact had made a marriage feast and there was one person that wasn't arrayed properly. He had not put on the proper garments to attend. Well, when the one who saw him come, he was beside himself with fury. Friend, why art thou prepared? Why are not you dressed with the garment I gave thee? The man had no good answer. He was cast out. You see, we again must be prepared and ready, wearing the properly clothed garments otherwise we have no opportunity of entering heaven. For there's where the bridegroom and the bride are going to go. If we expect to go into the marriage supper and rejoice and be a part of that number, we must be arrayed properly with righteousness, clothed in the very character of faithfulness to God. Without that, we of course shall be found just as certainly left out as was that person cast out of that marriage supper in Matthew the 22nd chapter. Finally, in verse number 10, we noted earlier that John was overwhelmed at the character of this revelation. 
again with the defeat of Babylon. He now has been shown the power and beauty of the marriage of the Lamb, and John is falling to worship the angel. We can easily see how overcome John was, but by the same token, note the character of the angel's response. The angel did not accept his worship. He said, in fact, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant. God and he alone is worthy of being worshipped. That last comment that I placed on the screen seems very appropriate in light of that verse, doesn't it? If, in fact, is the way I wrote it, if it's sinful to worship an angel, and it is, what then right could there be of worshiping any man, regardless of how noble he may appear, how scholarly he may have been, the appropriate respect that he may be given in terms of other aspects of his character. God and he alone is to be worshipped. Thus, it is a sad thing when you and I consider so many who actually will worship a man or group of men or some particular activity or action. Even Peter, one of the very apostles of our Savior, when Cornelius fell at his feet and was ready to worship him in Acts chapter 10 verse 26, Peter said, stand up on your feet, I too am a man. Peter did not accept Cornelius' worship. He was a human. Oh, today, how valiant such a lesson still continues to be. With the closing of verse number 10, we see the testimony of Jesus as the spirit of prophecy. That reminds us of the grandeur of the prophets of the Old Testament. Just as they foretold the beauty and the reality of the coming of the Christ, the opportunity of the church, the blessedness of God's salvation through the Messiah. We note here the testimony of Jesus. What Jesus taught and said is the fulfillment of all the prophets had in mind. Today we look not then for another set of prophets. We look not for another revelation. There shall be none. The Spirit of Jesus is a testimony prophecy. With that said, we're prepared to begin in verse, verse number 11. Let us read verses 11 through 21, concluding Revelation chapter 19, and then again we'll return and make some remarks about these verses as well. Revelation 19, beginning in verse number 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, 
with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth. And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Again, as we've often noted, what a scene of imagery. What a scene of overwhelming consideration as we attempt to visualize some of what we have just read about and seen. I would ask you to think with me that verse 11, John saw heaven opened. We noted that back in chapter 4 he saw heaven opened, and that which followed was a dramatic presentation of the revelation of God on his throne prepared for the great judgment. Notice again, this is a scene of judgment. Furthermore, as we consider that point, he sees one riding a white horse. The white horse is symbolic of victory. It has ever been so, it seems, in the consideration of human armies. In the ancient times, that king that was victorious would prance forth and ride on a white horse into the city and be acclaimed and praised and lauded for the victory. That white horse, again symbolic of victory, reminds us here that the one riding the horse had been ultimately victorious. And this one riding the horse had triumphed over all of the enemies that had been presented to him. Notice that the one sitting on the horse, though, is called by several names. Verse 11, he's called Faithful and True. We see later, he's called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We see in verse number 13 and following, he's called the Word of God. Would those names help us identify who is riding the white horse? Without a doubt. In fact, we could list many passages that direct our minds certainly to the reality that this is none other than the very Son of God, Jesus Himself. Note before we saw the imagery of He was the bridegroom. Now He's the victor, the one returning from the slaughter and aftermath of those who've been defeated. In John 1 verse 1, for example, as we think about the phrase, Word of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There, Jesus is identified as the Word of God. Later in verse 14 of that chapter, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who else other than Jesus took the form of human flesh and dwelt among us, but could yet be called the Word? He was with God in the beginning. There could be no other. He's also called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul called him that in 1 Timothy 6 verse 15. As he wrote that letter to his young son in the faith, he made note of the fact this Jesus whom we appreciate and adore is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. As we consider the identification then of Christ, isn't it fair to say that note his eyes are as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. We will remember in chapter 1 of this book the fact that he's identified in a very similar way there. Recall there he held stars in his hand and as he walked in the midst of his churches, it is there described of him in words exactly like this. His eyes were as a flame of fire. And what's more, his head of many crowns. Thus John has used very similar words on two different occasions to describe none other than the very Son of God. This victory that Jesus here sees in verse 14 is such that there are armies that are following him. They too are dressed in white and furthermore dressed in that which is clean. We yet see again the fact they've been prepared. 
no corruption, no types of behavior or conduct which are tarnishing or marring their presentation is absolutely pure. To say that is to say, though, in verse 15, there's something emanating or coming forth from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. What is it? Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. What is that sword? What does it represent? Heaven is a spiritual abode. We know that there's no literal physical sword there, just as there's no literal physical harp. What is the sword representative of? We know other places in the New Testament, texts like Ephesians 6, verse 17, where we're told there in regard to the Word of God, it is sharp as a sword. Hebrews 4, verse 12, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That which goes forth out of his mouth, Represented here by the sword, none other than the great commandments of the gospel, the representative of the gospel ministration. It'll be significant to note that that word in verse number 14, that sword is described again. It will slay those on the occasion who have not been submissive to it. For that word has the power of eternal condemnation behind it. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. To see these descriptions about Jesus, the character of that sword that comes forth from his mouth, leads us to see in verses 17 and following that John sees an angel standing in the sun. And in terms of that angel, there's a statement that is made along with it. Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. At this point, prior to looking at the fullness of that description, maybe we could consider another artist's rendition. As an artist attempted to represent the white horse and the one riding upon it, this is one artist's picture. You perhaps can see some of the features or aspects of it. For instance, there is a sword coming forth from his mouth. You may not be able to see much of the detail of it, you can see that on his thigh something is written. That, of course, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords from verse number 16. You notice that there are crowns on his head. You can also see with me that there is a rather great power associated with his eyes as of a flame of fire. Again, this is one artist's picture. As you look at some of the features of it, it is a rather remarkable matter to fully visualize or attempt to appreciate. As we see that written for us, I would ask you to note that as the chapter rolls onward, let us look at some of the features to be seen in the part that's associated next. The white horse that we have seen, this description that's here given to us, reminds us of the sharpness of that sword that emanates from his mouth and the absolute victory that is his. We understand that a human king may perhaps be victorious in one battle, but may lose the next, may be completely defeated, perhaps even slain. That shall not be true in this case. All victors or all enemies have been vanquished. All opponents have been defeated. There's nothing left but the victorious. Can we not fairly say that we'd like to be amongst that number, cataloged amongst those armies in heaven? Again, earlier in the chapter, described as those who in fact are amongst those who are a part of the bride. 
we have that opportunity. We have the great privilege of being cataloged amongst these two powerful images of this chapter. Those who are prepared for the marriage of the Lamb. Those who are amongst the armies of the great God of heaven. If God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 Some of the comments that I've asked you to consider on that page are such that we also notice a rather interesting scene appearing in verse 17. This perhaps is an element of this chapter we may have often overlooked. I freely confess I had not appreciated in its fullness until I restudied the chapter for myself again. In the very last part of verse number 17, the following remark is made. Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. But the very context of that supper, it is not a supper like that which is described in verse 9. There it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who have been prepared to go in in righteousness and enjoy the goodness of God forevermore. The context here, verses 17 and 18, note what's taking place at this supper. You may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men. And these birds that are described in verse 17 are plucking the flesh of these present at this supper. This is not a supper at which you or I would like to be present. We would not look forward to being a guest at this supper. What supper is it? It's the supper that is as follows. Just as surely as God has a pleasant and marvelous supper awaiting those that are as faithful, there is also a feast awaiting for those who are the unfaithful. But you see, on that one, it's here that they're described as the ones devoured at the supper. They're the ones that shall not, in fact, leave it in a safe way. They're the ones consumed in it. Isn't that a rather amazing and loathsome picture? You see, the unfaithful will have a supper too, but it'll not be a pleasing one, a pleasant one, a desirable one, a blissful one. It'll be one in which they shall be consumed forever and ever. The scene that follows... We notice in verses 19 and following, John saw the beast. This is that same beast that we learned about first in chapter 13. There was that sea beast who we identified on that occasion. And notice here what is the end of this beast. Verse 20, the beast was taken. With him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. That's the second beast of chapter 13. In fact, those are the same words describing the land beast of chapter 13. So both beasts, the sea and land beast, it says in verse 20, are such that they were cast alive into a lake fire burning with brimstone. We aren't left any doubt about what this is. This is the grand scene of that picture on the day of judgment when those who have in fact have that mark of the beast... Those who have not devoted their life to the cause of Christ. Those who followed Rome and all the things ever century since that have taken them from God. This is the end of that group. They are cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Hell itself. Jesus had stated back in Matthew 25, 41, there is a place for the devil and his angels, this place called hell. It's described in Mark 9 as a place where the fire is never quenched, where the worm dies not, a place of stench and outer darkness. That's where the beast, both of them, are cast forevermore. Maybe at this point we could return and look at a picture. This is an artist's rendition of these two being cast into this lake of fire burning with brimstone. 
as they're cast into it and they fall into that everlasting pit whose torment and whose quenching is not at all known. That's the end again of the beast. Might I submit to you as we consider that given element how significant it is not to ignore Jesus. He's the only protective safety from not ending up the same place that they shall be. Isn't that a sobering thought and a rather remarkable way to close our lesson tonight? In conclusion, we have seen the remarkable praise for the Lamb, the praise to God, the beautiful marriage recognition of the Lamb Himself. We've also seen that this chapter brings to an end the beast. If I might help you see with me at this point a threefold end. Chapter 18 was the end of Babylon, the harlot. Chapter 19 is the end of the beast. Chapter 20 will be the end of one more entity. Even though it's a bit ahead concerning next Sunday night's lesson, chapter 20 is the end of the dragon. We first saw him in chapter 12. As we consider the end of all these enemies to God, it is of absolute importance to not be God's enemy. We should be upon his side, if you will, much like Abraham was to be his friend. Tonight, are you prepared to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb? If you are, then certainly the blessing of all eternity rests upon you. And may we each make certain of that situation for ourselves. Tonight, though, if you're not prepared to attend that marriage feast of the Lamb, if according to this chapter you have not made yourself ready and clothed yourself with righteousness, make that change at once. You see, life is too brief. Eternity is too permanent. We need to make certain that things are ready now. If we could assist you tonight in your obedience to the gospel, in the character or belief of the gospel itself, believing Jesus to be the Son of God, repenting of those sins that have alienated you from your heavenly Father, confess His glorious name as the Son of God, and at once be immersed for the forgiveness of sins. If we could assist you in that matter, it would truly be a tremendous day for you. If we could, however, aid you to rededicate your life to Jesus, we would also be happy to do that in prayer. If either of those things is the need of your life, tonight let that be made known and may all of us. So conduct ourselves in a way to be a part of that marriage supper of the Lamb. If we can help you be ready tonight in a public way, let that be known if you would, even now, while together we stand and while we sing.